Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comero, an Autistic Certified Financial Planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. hey everyone. Hey, Andrew. My name is Eileen Lamb. I'm an autistic author and photographer from France, living in Austin, Texas. And in this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but real people. Obviously, they're real, talking about their boring life. Basically, we want to give a voice to people like us and we want to hear from different perspectives. And our guest today is Lucy Cross Wallace. Lucy is an undergraduate student studying Russian and philosophy at Stanford University. She likes coffee, Margaret Atwood novels, and kindness. Hey, Lucy. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's a, it's a real pleasure. We'll talk more about it, but uh, you, you published an article that I really love. Um, yeah, we'll talk more about it. So we start by asking all our guests what pronouns and identity they prefer. Like as far as autism, do you like person with autism better, autistic person and pronouns, you know, she, he. So tell us. Um, I use she, her pronouns. As for a person with autism or autistic person, I don't really care. I think they kind of mean the same thing. So as long as people are being nice to me, I'm happy with anything. Awesome. So so we have some questions for you. Uh, and some of them, and, and we asked go similar, you know, in the beginning to everyone. So when and how did you get diagnosed as autistic? Oh, this is a fun story. Um, let's see. So I got diagnosed when I was 18. And autism was, was kind of, hmm, how do I back up and tell this? I got diagnosed when I was 18 and I only got diagnosed after a bunch of other things were ruled out. And the backstory here is that I've had various forms of mental illness since I was about eight. This has been a huge part of my life for most of my life. And about how old was I? Maybe 17. I, I ended up spending quite a few months in hospitals back to back in different parts of the country, um, seeing doctors who were not really sure what was wrong with me or how to help me. And I finally ended up at a clinic that does differential diagnosis and they diagnosed me with autism. And I was, I was very surprised by this at first. Um, I was expecting a different diagnosis, something more, something closer to a mood disorder or a psychotic something I wasn't even sure. Um, and I just had, when I heard the word autism, I pictured maybe like a seven-year-old boy who's sort of rocking back and forth and looking at the ground and and didn't understand sarcasm, which, and that's not a value judgment. That's just, that was the picture in my mind of autism. So I never thought that ASD could apply to me. But then I had these conversations with the doctor who diagnosed me and, and it started to make sense that all of these strange things about me that I had always considered quirks or defects actually fit together under this diagnostic label and that other people were like me. So at first it was scary and then it was incredible. And having that diagnosis has helps me understand myself and then work out the rest of my life. Now, every time we have a guest on this podcast who is a, a girl, a woman, I feel like our stories are so identical. It's just there is something about autism and, and women that is just uh, that brings brings us together. You know, like you were saying, often people think about autism and they're going to picture the, the, the white boy. And it's it, it sucks for us because it makes it harder to, to get diagnosed. And I think it's important that we talk more about the differences between uh, boys and girls, women and, and men when it comes to, to autism. As a, being 
diagnosed with autism changed how people perceive you, you think? The, the most obvious way it changed how people perceive me was in terms of mental health treatment because I was, you know, in, yeah, institutionalized, so call it that. And doctors before had observed what I now understand are artistic symptoms, like kind of, hmm, sometimes rooms would get really loud in hospitals and I would just run out because after a certain point I couldn't take the sensory overload. And I wasn't like trying to be defiant or obnoxious or anything. I just, I just couldn't stand how loud it was. Or there was one conversation with um, a therapist where she was talking really loudly and I just, I think I started either crying or running out of the room. Um, there's a lot of running out of the room now that I think about it. And so before I was kind of, people told me to just stop doing that, stop causing problems. Um, some people accused me of, of making up symptoms, all of that. And then once I had this diagnosis, suddenly the, the doctors I was seeing seemed to understand and were willing to accommodate. And I remember there's, there was one point where I was hospitalized very briefly and I got there and they said, we read in your chart that you're autistic and that you, you don't do well with noise and you're 18, but we're just going to put you on the adolescent ward because it's quieter there. And I think that was probably the difference between like a hellish experience that could have lasted a really long time if I hadn't calmed down and a few days that weren't that fun, but it was so quiet and peaceful that I could kind of return to a, a more normal state. And so for me, really in, in a medical context, having that information made an enormous difference. And then beyond that, I've learned that sometimes if you just tell people I'm autistic, they don't know what to do with that information. But if you attach it like I'm autistic, so I might not make eye contact with you. And um, I, I hope it doesn't come across as rude. It's just difficult for me then that makes certain conversations and interactions go more easily. So in terms of the medical setting, the autism diagnosis clarified a lot of things and made life easier. And then in my everyday life, I'm able to tell people that I'm autistic and then use that information to make other things easier. Yeah. What I really liked about what you said too, is that you know autistic doesn't mean you know it's not helpful, right? So for example, you know, saying the lights bother my eyes or give a, a migraine. Like most people have had an experience of a bad headache, right? They can understand if they haven't been hungover, right? Or they have a similar experience, right? So I find saying the light bothers my eyes, you know, is so much more helpful because everyone who's autistic is different, right? And having a reason why um, is really important. But also at the same time, it's never an excuse for bad behavior, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, it's definitely can be a struggle and there can be, you know, moments and, you know, apologize, you know, afterwards or, or see and, and things happen. But I, I do find that most people, like you said, want to be kind or want to try to do good or, or the right thing. So um, I guess question um, as far as just how have treatments changed, like medical treatments since the autism slash mental illness when they knew it was autism and everything else was a symptom of autism. You mentioned you've been hospitalized. Have you really been hospitalized much since being diagnosed autistic? Has that been reduced because knowing the reason why you're now able to maybe avoid some of those things? Or do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I was basically, so I was in a, this is like an inpatient unit where I was diagnosed with autism. And they ended up going to one or two more places. And there were, it wasn't like everything was caused by autism. There were some other illnesses that I was and sort of am still dealing with. Um, but what happened is I went to a treatment place where 
they had treated autistic patients before and just knew what they were doing. So part of it was being more accommodating in terms of sensory stuff, um, just like in an in, inpatient setting, having an autistic person be in groups of people talking all day is, is, is not a good idea, at least based on my interactions with um, some autistic people and then the overwhelm that produces. So understanding that like I needed a couple hours in a dark room just to calm down. Um, there are some other, other related parts. Um, this is, this is a, a phenomenon that I have tried to find information on in scientific papers and haven't found anything. I have a theory that autism and distress can sometimes result in psychotic-like speech. So when I get very upset and disoriented, my, my speech changes and I, I stop making sense and I might speak in strings of Russian nouns or something. Um, and most people find this unsettling, including me. And doctors saw this as symptomatic of psychosis or something. But because I've observed this pattern in myself and have had other people tell me, this is when you get overwhelmed, this is anxiety. It's, it's not these other things. And here's what you can do. Like I've learned to manage that. Um, I've also... So identifying emotions, alexithymia, the inability to read emotions. Um, I didn't know that was an autism thing or that I had it. I guess I didn't realize that other people were more in touch with their emotions. Um, and a lot of therapy is like talking about your emotions, but that's hard to do if you don't know what they are. So after the autism diagnosis, things kind of backed up. And, instead, and, and so instead of like, how do you feel? Um, some of the people treating me helped me understand what feelings were at all. So, so those are some examples of, of the kind of shifts that really helped. And I think maybe the, the most important thing is that when you have any sort of illness, there's like an imagined recovery that's maybe returned to your baseline state of health or lack of symptoms. And I think for me, people were imagining like a normal college age kid's life, which is like, you know, going out with friends and getting pizza in the middle of the night and dating and parties. And I don't know why they were so big on parties. Um, but they had that expectation for me and I kept falling short of it and, and feeling like I was failing or like I, I was, well, I just wasn't doing it right and all of that. And once I realized I was autistic, it helped me understand that that's never gonna be my life and that's okay. Like my version of health and recovery are atypical because my brain is atypical. And so I want to hold myself to those standards instead of expecting something that's never actually gonna be. Yeah. You know, I had to do the same thing, not for partying, because I really struggled with and was never able to do was going to uh, the university in person. I tried three mm -hmm. different years in a row and I just couldn't do it. So I had to graduate online. But what really st stuck with me with what you said is the losing your speech when you're overwhelmed, because that happens to me. And it's not even that I'm losing my speech. I mean, sometimes I stutter, which is, you know. But I just don't make sense. When you said it, I was like, that happened to me. And I'm like, is it because I'm speaking English, but I'm a nat native French speaker? So to me, that, that was the reason. I never thought maybe it would be like autism related, but it makes a lot of sense that it will be because it's impact, you know, it's when my, yeah, I'm overwhelmed and I can't control my emotions. So if you find, you said you were looking, I mean, I would love to learn and hear more about that or if there are any studies, because that is so interesting. It's something I've, yeah, I, I was trying to find articles on like psychotic like speech and whatnot, because I'm also just very interested in psychiatry and I couldn't find any scientific things when I checked. But then in terms of and like online autism communities, I've heard the term intermittent speech or unreliable speech that I like a lot because I'm certainly not nonverbal as you can tell right now. But the idea that like there are times when I, when my speech is unreliable, I thought that was a good term to describe it. Um, I guess another thing that I could add is I, 
I've since realizing this about myself, I've used different apps that can like I pre-program them to say certain things um, like I need water, I need my meds. Um, it's too bright, it's too loud. Those are the common ones. Um, but I think once you once you start finding the challenges, then you can solve them. Just make life better. That's a great idea. And I know you. We talked about it before we started recording, but you speak several languages too. Uh, do you want to tell us more about that? I know you speak Russian and we talked about a little bit of French. Tell us. Yes. Uh, I don't want to give myself too much credit. Um, I started <laughs> learning Spanish when I was 11 and it was kind of for a silly reason because I, there was a, I had a friend in the class who got a better score than me on a test and I was very mad about that and wanted to do better. So I first perceived the language out of kind of pettiness and then I realized I loved it. Um, so that was fortuitous. So I, I started Spanish and When I was 14, I started learning French and my grandmother was French. And so she, we'd, we'd talk over the phone every week um, and she had me reading absurdist plays. And she even suggested that we put on absurdist plays in French for the whole family. And I thought it was a great idea, except that they don't speak French or like absurdism. And I said, aside from that, it sounds wonderful. Um, and then I picked up, well, I didn't pick up Russian. I started learning Russian a couple years ago and it's hopefully going to be my major at Stanford. Um, I just love languages. Learning languages is like an opportunity. It's like a, a constant experiment with my own brain. It's like, how do I best learn? How do I optimize this process? Um, how do I challenge myself? Um, yeah, it's, and then it's, it's gotten me into Russian figure skating. So that's also really exciting. So cool. Yeah, I love languages too. You often hear that autistic people like math and numbers. Like that would be Andrew. Maybe that's a guy thing guy thing <laughs> but I love languages too um, and speaking of Andrew his name is Russian uh, can you tell us what it means because I don't know well I think Kamar is mosquito, um, <laughs> mosquito. it doesn't look immediately Russian but yeah yes. Kamar. well but I so what I well, the way I remembered that word is Eileen can you guess what Kashmar means Kashmar Kashmar would be nightmare to me exactly yeah. there are a lot of um Russian words taken from the French. Huh. Um, so I remember that a kamar is a kashmar and a mosquito is a nightmare. Ooh, that is so fun. Andrew, you're a nightmare then. I, I don't know well, if I'd prefer I to be a nightmare a or a mosquito. So I, I guess neither are that great. Okay. So I am. Mosquito is probably better. Thank you. So, yes. <laughs> I, went, I went totally off script. I'm just like so into this conversation. I know. <laughs> But yeah, now there is a question that I so wanted to ask you. And But do you want me to go? Do you want to flip it? And then you could pick. Okay. No, I want to ask it right now because it's burning my lips. I think that's the expression. So we both read, I mean, a lot of people read your article about uh, the neurodiversity movement, I guess. And after you were diagnosed, you kind of were into the idea they were sharing, right? Um, so what? did you like about it and then what made you realize that that's just wasn't good i guess can you t tell us more about that and for the people who may not be familiar with the article what we will link to it in a chat but if you could talk about like nobody's read it who's listening the article being the quillette piece the one with the ncsa on medium that article oh yes okay So the neurodiversity movement, let's see. So after I got diagnosed, I was in the hospital. I got out of the hospital. I started at Stanford. Um, there's a very social justice focused 
culture at Stanford and there's nothing wrong with wanting to support social justice. Um, but there, it did feel like having a kind of oppressed identity gave people social status and moral authority. And I realized that autism kind of became a way to cash in on that. Um, so I'm going to be very blunt. Like by, by getting into this whole, I'm autistic, I have a disability, really society is the oppressor, you know, I'm disabled by society, not by any intrinsic impairment. If society were more accommodating, I wouldn't even have a disability. And, and so I, I got into this way of thinking because it was being reinforced by my environment. It really matched a lot of the, um, the, the way, I think a lot of my generation looks at kind of society being fundamentally oppressive. Um, and, and I was angry, frankly, that I had spent a lot of years struggling a lot with people not knowing how to help me and it had taken so long to get this diagnosis. And so I think this was a neat way to place my anger, um, just direct my anger at this concept of society and, and feel like I was being victimized. And in reality, I was never victimized. I was just unlucky and unlucky to get diagnosed. Um, but it was kind of an addictive way of seeing the world. It made me feel righteous. It was, it was very black and white. Um, and it was, it got a little bit delusional after a certain point. A lot of it, a lot of this has to do with these online echo chambers, especially Tumblr, where I think people um, with these extreme ideas about, you know, disability being exclusively caused by society sort of congregate. And I believe this is what I wrote about in the um, article for the National Council on Severe Autism, how there are these cognitive distortions that fuel um, some forms of neurodiversity activism. Um, and actually, this is a while ago, so I'm forgetting some of the specifics. Um, I think the black and white thinking, the dichotomous thinking of like, either you're with us or against us, either you're ableist or you agree with everything I have to say about disability. Um, I, th I think that way of thinking really uh, gets in the way of, of having conversations. Um, at a certain point, I thought that if people use specific words or if they disagreed with my perspective on this book or that movie's representation of autism, or they called me a person with autism, not autistic person, then they were ableist and they were part of the problem and I needed to re-educate them or separate myself from them. Um, so there was kind of, that sense of things. I think the other the other part of that that I look back on and think, what on earth is is just denying the reality that some people are very severely impaired by autism, um, and just because I'm not doesn't mean I get to make these blanket statements about, you know, ever you know autism is great and we should accept autism and not try to cure it. I don't. No one appointed me the spokesperson of all autistic people. I don't. I get to speak about my experience, but I. I can't generalize and say how other people see the world or what other people want. Um, so I, I think the, the enthusiasm for justice and, and the sense of certainty can really go haywire. Um, and that's what happened with me. Yeah, you give me so much hope. I mean, listening to you talk and knowing that someone who first thought, you know, this movement, I don't even know how to call it, was great and, you know, when you look at it on paper, it's, it is kind of nice, this idea of neurodiversity. Some part of it, some parts of it are nice, um, but it's everything that goes 
around it, the, the delivery, the, the, the bullying, the, like you said, black and white, but like it's, to me, it's ex extremism. You know, it's like you're either with us, like you said, or you're, you have self-abolism, you're a terrible mother. I mean, you go kill yourself. I mean, it's just like, just for saying like person with, person with autism instead of autistic or using a, the puzzle piece symbol instead of the infinity loop. I mean, mm -hmm. it's for such little things, but most importantly, uh, as to me, it's the severe autism side because my son is, I mean, autism is still a disability to me, even though I'm considered high functioning, but compared to my son, Charlie, who, I mean, he's, you know, he's aggressive towards other himself. He can communicate beyond basic needs that there's a lot of destruction. He's probably not going to be able to live an independent life. And mm -hmm. to hear that they, they don't even acknowledge that severe autism is a thing is just to me it's it's crazy and i always ask myself i wonder if there is hope with these people if they they can change and like listen to another perspective and hearing your your story it's just i don't know it makes me hope hopeful i i don't think a lot of people are gonna be like you and but who knows so thank you so much for sharing this part of your story it's truly amazing and I think a lot of people and parents are going to be uh and other autistic very uh happy to hear this perspective thank you for saying that I've gotten a fair number of emails from parents and from autistic people who are like I don't understand what's going on I said person with autism and now and then I got in trouble with people on Twitter or what tw Twitter's just bad um but it's really ironic that like an, a, a movement that's about accepting autism is also about all these intricate social rules that you have to, like in, in any sort of blunder where you say something you're not supposed to say is, is treated so unforgivingly. Like aren't autistic people the ones who don't pick up on social cues and misspeak and misinterpret context? It's, it's just, yeah, I mean, I think real neurodiversity, if you really believe that people have different brains, then you need to accept that people think differently too. That's the missing piece. Okay, your question. No, I, I think that's so great. And I've had similar conversations. And, you know, one of the reasons I really like this podcast is Eileen and I don't agree on everything, not even close. We have arguments over whether or not to, you know, certain podcast guests, right? One of us wants one, one of us don't, but we, we both have to agree. And, you know, to try to see other sides and perspectives. But it's so interesting that, you know, the neurodiversity movement, right, that, you know, thinking differently, right, is how I describe it. And so it's so interesting is, I guess, the only word that comes to mind, that in a movement that's dedicated to thinking differently, we want everyone to think exactly the same. Um, and I remember in April, I, I shared, I, you know, your article at least once without giving much an opinion. And can we all just agree not that we should not be assholes, right? Like, like the things some people say to Eileen, right? Uh, the things that we see, can we just agree that that's not an acceptable response or behavior? And I couldn't get that. And I'm like, we, we, we need to be able to get there though, that, you know, I th think it's a long ways to go, but really appreciate you speaking out because so many I think are afraid to because of the energy that it takes for Lyleen can speak to this more than probably anybody on the planet, right? Of, you know, dealing with the, the hate, right? Um, and just a lot of people don't have the time, the willpower, the energy to want to respond to all of these comments and all of these 
just everything. And I think one of the issues, and I think you mentioned in your article, and I realize I'm rambling, is, you know, that parents can't respond, right? You know, we're alienating the people who want to listen to us. And what I've noticed since April is, you know, a year ago, if I would say I was autistic and making a comment, I was almost more respected. And now it's like parents are afraid that I'm going to attack them for just saying the simple wrong thing. And I'm, I'm just noticing a change. And I really hope that as a community, we don't go too far, right? And that we realize that different people can have different opinions and that's okay. Um, then again, you know, we are talking about a group of individuals that for the most part, at least according to clinical diagnosis lacks the ability to see things from other people's perspectives. So it also shouldn't be that surprising that that's hard for us. Um, but on the other hand, I'm going to challenge you. So your article was with the National Council of Severe Autism, which I would argue is the other extreme, right? Mm -hmm. So did you go from one extreme to another? Um, or was it just that was a good outlet for you to share your article similar to Autism Speaks is a good outlet and medium for us to share this podcast? Or did you find yourself, what, what was the moment where you realized the actually autistic movement or the, the part of the movement that you were associated with, maybe not all of the movement, not everyone, were assholes? And what, what was the moment when you realized that? And do you think you went too far? I first want to address, when did I realize that the hashtag actually autistic was um, not the group with which I want to be associated? Because that's an easy one. Um, I think seeing the parent bullying, sorry, I'm just gonna, my headphones are about to die. That are like terrible. Um, yeah, so with the actually autistic, um, hashtag actually autistic, it was with the bullying. Um, I, I, there was just, that's a line. If, if a group of people is bullying other people in the name of justice, I'm done, I'm out. Um, there was also a, last fall, there was, you know, the CM movie music with the, the autistic character and there was a 60 second clip and Twitter freaked out. And I wrote a piece called, you don't have to be autistic to play an autistic character um, because that's how acting works generally. Um, and, and I realized as I was writing it that the hashtag actually autistic isn't actually autistic people because I'm actually autistic and I disagree. Therefore I'm not hashtag actually autistic. It's just like a tribalistic language game. And I, I just thought I, so I have a disability. That doesn't mean you get to tell me how I should think. And, and that, there was just that moment of irritation and anger. Um, so that's, that's when I realized I didn't want to be associated with that. I want to go back with what you asked, uh, back to what you asked. Wow, prepositions are hard. Um, you said NCSA, I think you said it's the opposite extreme? Yeah, or, or it's been accused of, or, or even just my opinion is it's, it's, a, they, it's, it's a, another end of the spectrum, as someone might say. Yeah, could you, um, could you say a little more about what you mean by that? Sure, so I, I will say that I, I think the NCSA in a lot of ways is built on the opposite of the neurodiversity, actually autistic movement, where some of the articles I would say are a little, they're, they're a response to the hashtag actually autistic, but in an equally black and white hatred way. I disagree. Kind of, see? <laughs> see? 
So, or, or some of their articles can be just not like every actual person who uses the hashtag actually autistic uses it in a negative light. And Eileen will probably disagree again. Yeah, I do. Um, huh? I do. I disagree. Which is okay. Can we still do the podcast next week, Eileen? No. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> moving on. Continue. <laughs> so l- let me say a little bit about the context of that article. Um, Jill Escher reached out to me and said, this was when I wrote a piece in Colette in the fall. And she said, I really liked it. And we kind of wrote back and forth. And she told me more about having two severely autistic kids whom she loves to pieces who, who can't take care of themselves and are, and are very significantly impaired. Um, and also the, the challenges of getting hatred from uh, the, the hashtag actually autistic people online. Um, and so that was a conversation that had, had been kind of slowly developing over a few months. And she said, would you be interested in writing a piece about the cognitive, um, the, the cognitive biases in the neurodiversity movement? I think it'd be helpful for parents. And I said, sure. And so I wrote the piece. And so I, um, I, I, I wrote an article because it seems like that blog reaches parents who feel very alienated um, by a lot of the conversations about autism. I would say it's extreme because severe autism is extreme by definition. And so the statements about autism on that blog aren't gonna apply to me generally because I I don't have severe autism. And I I think that, um, I I don't know that I've read anything that I would describe as hateful. I think their blog posts, especially the ones by parents and the anonymous ones tend to be impassioned and like the pain is very palpable um, because it's painful to, you know, have, have, a per, have a person you love so severely impaired and, and have that really limit their abilities, not just redefining impairment. Um, but I, I've never, I, I don't think I've seen anything hateful. If I had, I wouldn't have published there. Um, and I'm also not like going from being a hashtag actually autistic crusader to a crusader for anything else. Um, I'm more interested in sharing ideas and thinking carefully and entertaining lots of possibilities. That's actually a rule I have for myself is if I ever publish anything, then I need to be willing to engage with the opposite opinion. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a good question. Like I, I have a tendency to go to extremes in many areas of life and it's something I have to watch out for. Um, but I don't think that's what that was. Yeah, I, I agree. And what you said about, you know, their articles are from a place of hurt and suffering because they witness their children like struggles every day. I mean, that's what I live with my son, Charlie. And unless you live it, you have no idea what it's like, honestly, just because like you you have an autism diagnosis um, doesn't mean that you would understand this level three autism and even like level three autism is still a broad spectrum actually you know but when you're really on that end of the spectrum i mean it is so tough and if these kiddos and adults because you know what they grow up into adults were able to talk and advocate for themselves on social media which they can do there is no way they would tell us that they want that that they want the struggles to to stay you know and I, I understand how that can be seen as extreme to say, well, I want the autism away. But people have to understand that this is so much different from level one autism, you know, Asperger's, level one autism being high functioning, however you want to call it. To me, it's two different diagnoses. And in the media, you really mostly only hear the inspirational stories. And 
this is why I like this podcast because I want to hear from people who, you know what, they have autism, they don't do much with their life. Some people um, are going to have, you know, very inspirational story. They're going to be like author, I guess my story is kind of inspirational, but that's not the case for everyone. That's the point. And that's why that website can seem extreme, but it's exactly what you said one more time. I mean, honestly, like hearing you talk, I'm like, you express yourself so beautifully and it's it's amazing to hear it from someone else. Um, I mean, we've never talked before today and yet I feel like, yeah, we, we get it. Like, you know, I I feel you and yeah, thanks again for, for your perspective. There's, I mean, that's also, I, I heard these stories of, and having seen how parents get harassed relentlessly online. And then I thought of, this is, this is Emily Dickinson, right? If I could start, stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. I was, I co-founded the Kindness Club in high school. Um, I don't know that I stopped any hearts from breaking. That seems a little ambitious, but just having heard from a couple parents who reached out and said, thank you so much for writing this, that made that article worth it to me. Exactly. Yeah. If one person feels less alone reading our words to me, it's, it's exactly how I feel. It's just receiving those messages from parents and other autistic because there are a lot of autistic people, people with autism like us who feel the same way, but they've been bullied into silence. And that is the very sad thing. Like it takes, we've reached a point where it takes bravery and courage to speak about our own diagnosis and say something against the vocal minority. I think they're the minority. I don't have any proof. See, I'm going to admit it. But to me, they're just so vocal that they've silenced the rest of the autistic population uh, into, into silence. And those who don't even have the luxury to be on social media, who, of course, can't advocate for themselves. So, yeah, um, it's really impressive that you have the, the bravery to publicly admit that you were wrong. Um, I mean, Ed. go, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is the part I wrote for the record, but anyway, uh, okay. So what I find most impressive about, sorry, what I find really impressive about you and almost like most impressive is the fact that you admitted you were wrong, which is such a hard thing for the vast majority of the human population to admit um, when they are wrong, but not just saying you're wrong or you're sorry and saying you won't do it again, but, you know, coming up with, you know, ways to try to fix it and to not do it again. I mean, you've disengaged from that community. So clearly, I mean, it, it seems like you'll never, you know, go down that path again. Um, but what about others who, you know, so when I want, when I shared your article and I remember sharing the article and I just said, here's an article, I find it a really interesting perspective. That is true. Then it is that, sorry. That was true then, it is true today. I find an interesting perspective. I don't agree with all of it, but there were some really well-written points that resonated with me. And even the ones I agreed disagreed with, it was the type of thing that I don't see written enough. And I don't think you're the only one who feels that way or has similar thoughts, but there's so many people who are afraid to speak up for lack of a better term, and to share their thoughts or opinions. If it was hard for me just to share the article without giving any context, without any comment, how, what advice would you give to somebody who, you know, is at a similar point to where you were? They're looking to just get diagnosed. They're just diagnosed as an adult. They're looking for the community, for somebody who's fallen, you know, in one way or another, right, down this rabbit hole, right? 
what advice would you give to somebody like that, you know, to help bring them out, right? Or to help them at least even see all the perspectives and really, as you said, just help people not be assholes to each other horribly should be the goal. And that shouldn't be that an impossible standard. Um, where do we go from here? I think I've, I've um, been asked this question before about sort of de-radicalizing. How do you help people do that? I think that one of the things that helped me uh, de-radicalize myself, sure, we'll call it that, is seeing the effect of other similar perspectives. So I was on Tumblr and at the same time that I was kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I actually bullied people, but advancing these um, really troubling things about autism, I was getting all these messages about like, you know, if you're, you have this skin color, this gender, this whatever, this, um, I don't know, ethnicity, whatever, insert immutable characteristic here, you're complicit in blah, blah, blah. And there were a lot of messages like, if you like stop scrolling and take this action to support this organization. And it was get, it was like, getting to a point where I was thinking constantly about how I was ostensibly complicit in all of these awful things. And I knew rationally that I, I couldn't morally be held responsible for like things that happened before I was born. But then I was so worried about things being problematic and was I complicit in this and what is I supporting this and what about my privilege and guilt and thinking about everything in terms of privilege and guilt was like, was just kind of eating my brain. And, and so, and at the same time, like thinking this, this moral purity of like everyone around me has to have the exact same beliefs about autism, otherwise they're ableist and I can't, I can't even talk to them because then I'm enabling ableism or something like that. It was, it just made me really, really miserable. The number of books and movies I enjoyed, it, like I, I, I stopped letting myself enjoy certain things. I thought the Netflix show Atypical was pretty good. I, I liked the first few seasons, but then someone on Tumblr was like, that's actually very problematic. And I was like, okay, I guess I can't like Atypical anymore. So oh. I think the best appeal to someone who's, who's sort of radicalized might start with like someone who's close to them saying just in a, in a non-judgmental descriptive way, I've noticed that you are really like you're, you're lashing out at people and you're not enjoying TV shows and all that. And you don't seem very happy with this. Is it worth exploring other perspectives? Um, and just starting starting with that, because I think once I had that realization, I was able to be more self-aware and, and have a little bit more insight. Um, but just starting with the fact that I was actually miserable beneath all the um, smug righteousness. I mean, that's where I began and that's where it started unraveling. So maybe that would work for others. And once it started unraveling, how long did it take for you to unravel, I guess, is the way to describe it. It was, um, well, there, there were different kinds of, so my perspective on, um, on, I guess what you'd call social justice um, changed pretty quickly. That kind of came first. Um, what was your position on social justice before and after it briefly? Um, well, so I'm for social justice. Someone okay. Asked me, are you for or against social justice? For um, I, I worry that we're getting really focused on identity categories, especially race and gender, to the point of essentializing them. Um, I love Martin Luther King Jr. style um, kind of content of character, um, enlightenment, humanism, like re really focusing on our shared humanity. Um, instead of essentializing racial categories. And so I would, I would like to see more of that and less of the kind of focusing on identity in a divisive way. 
that yeah Th thank you so much for sharing this perspective i love everything we're talking about today and you you're in a college you went to a stanford that's right stanford yeah. um what is it like being an artistic college student and can you talk about stanford that is in in many ways seems to be the leading many neurodiversity initiatives yeah um i love stanford's neurodiversity program they're amazing they um they i had the transition orientation basically i moved in five days before everyone else and i had um the the program staff including um, their program coordinator who's autistic herself and had just graduated. She showed me around campus, um, helped me get comfortable. I hid in my room while everyone else was moving in, trying not to freak out because of the loud sounds. Um, they helped me navigate the accommodations process. They've just been incredible. So I, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm, I'm also just so glad I went into college with the autism diagnosis because it kind of gave me, it let myself, nah, that's not right grammatically. It let me give myself permission to, you know, agree that I, I would just wasn't going to eat with people in the cafeteria that much because it's too exhausting for me. And before I would have been like, you should do that. You should try to be more normal. You should go to parties. You should try to socialize. And after the diagnosis, I was just like, no, I'm not going to make myself miserable. And I still managed to make friends and have good relationships, but I just accepted that my college life wasn't going to be like the average one. And I was going to be totally fine with that. Um, and then another thing is I took Average course load at Stanford is like 15, maybe up to 20 units. I took nine my first quarter. That's really low. Um, it was kind of hard because there's this, this kind of overachieving culture, push, push, push. But I, I had to accept that I had these disabilities and I had that limitation. And no matter how many units everyone else in my dorm was taking, I was going to do what was best for me. And I do not regret it. Really amazing to hear that some university colleges is that a word colleges the plural yeah do have some accommodations i mean friends that would never happen um so i'm glad you're able to uh, to enjoy college uh, in, in your own way and uh, i think in that way a diagnosis help a lot like you said you put less pressure on yourself to do things like you're expected to um so that's that's really good all right so we wrap up all our podcasts with some quick fire questions basically i'm gonna ask you some questions and you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind okay ready what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given be kind whenever possible it's always possible Oof. what do you like to do to relax I like to lie with my feet up on the wall. My friend and I call it de-blooding our legs, but like you lie like this and your feet are up here and this is your head and the blood comes down and it's nice. What does it feel like? Uh, tingly. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Coffee. What's your favorite film, movie, TV show? Um, oh, you might know this one. Uh, Graf, Raw. Uh, it's like a French feminist cannibals. I'll put it that way. No, never heard of it. Yes. And actually, I don't know if are you on social media much other than writing on uh, other websites? Because now, if you want to tell our listener where to find you on social media, uh, you can tell them now. And any, you know, anything you've written, we'll put it in the in the comments so people can find you and read all of your great posts. Thanks. I'm actually not on social media. It makes my life feel like a performance and I don't like it. So I can't really be found there. <laughs> That's fair. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was 
seriously so amazing speaking with you and I had a, a great time uh that we can do it in French yeah that's because of Andrew <laughs> thank you I'll so work much on that <laughs> yeah th thank you thank, thank you so much for the perspective and thank you so much for having the bravery to admit you were wrong I'll be wrong again probably so I'll admit it then too perfect